Welcome in, listeners, to a very exciting episode of Whisper in the Wings. We have a really, really big treat for you guys. We have a new show with, um, that you're all going to want to see. I've been seeing it all over my social media. Uh, so forgive me when I gush about it. It's very, very exciting. And joining us today, we have three of the main artists behind it. Emily Claire Schmidt, Emily Rose Simons, and Rhea, D, Rhea T. DeLulo. Forgive me. <laughs> Uh, welcome all. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Hi. We're happy to be here. <laughs> I am so stoked. Uh, we were just talking, and as I mentioned, I've been seeing your show. It turns out all over my social media, and it's been catching my eye. And when I was reached out with the the story behind the show, I was like, you know, Halloween came early. Like this is this is up my alley. <laughs> I'm so excited. So when the opportunity came to be able to speak with all of you. I was just agog. I was so excited. Um, so I'm so glad that you're here. Um, just to inform you listeners about who everyone is, uh, Emily Claire Schmidt is the book writer and originator. Emily Rose Simons is the composer and lyricist. And then Rhea T. DeLulo is the director, producer, and additional writer. So, I mean, these are the people we want to talk to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with that, why don't we uh, kick things off? Of course, we're talking about your new show, The Inconvenient Miracle. Um, what a wonderful title um, leading, in, uh, leading into the show. And why don't you guys go ahead and tell us a bit about your show? Uh, Emily Schmidt, do you want to go and start off with that? Yeah, I'll start with the elevator, my little elevator pitch, and then I'll have my collaborators add um, so the premise of the show is it takes place at an all-girls Catholic high school and the lone atheist at the school finds herself inexplicably pregnant and must convince the rest of the school that it is not Jesus, but no one believes her. And so in the course of that, she befriends a Catholic nun who is having a faith crisis related to a carrot patch. And the two of them together must overcome their differences and try to find out what it really means to have a real miracle in the modern world. That's the story. I love it. Um, who would like to continue with that? Does anybody want to pick up the ball and roll with it? I think Emily should. Oh, I was like, oh, definitely. Me. Um, uh, yes. Uh, it, it's a really it's a very fun show it we over the years we do this uh like it's heathers meets mormon it's uh it's uh <laughs> like mean it's, girls meets it's like mean oh, girls meets matilda i've got a i've got yeah. a really good a really weird one coming up it's sound of music meets carrie Oh god. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> we we get a lot of questions over the years about the the overall tone of this show and and uh, a popular movie from like the early 2000 aughts or early 2010s comes up a lot saved. Mm. Um, mm -hmm, with great. Macaulay Culkin and oh. Susan Sarandon's daughters in that, Mandy Moore is in it. Um, so tonally, it's got some of that involved. It's it's a fun show, and there's definitely nothing quite like it. Mm. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing! I I love the uh, the the Mormons meets uh, oh what is this? Mormons meet Heather's 
Heather. <laughs> I was just living for that because Heather's, of course, is another thing that's all over the social media right now. Uh, and I'm like, wow, just that's from my day and age. All these mean girls that just want to kill each other. And then originally being from Utah, and I'm like, oh my gosh, Mormons are the most friendly people you'll ever meet. And I'm like, put them all together in a room with some root beer. And I'm like, okay. This is <laughs> and some carrots. This is a carrots. huge exposition. Oh, car- carrots. So mm-hmm. I, I'm hooked. I'm intrigued. I, <laughs> and an atheist, yeah. an atheist in there for a little bit of lime twist. So this is great. So how did, how do you all come up with the show? Um, Emily Simons, why don't I start with you since you were the composer? How did you come up with the music for the show? Well, um, the show was originally a play by Emily Claire Schmidt and directed by Rhea. And then um, apparently at the final performance of the show, Rhea turned to Emily Claire and was like, it's a musical. And then they were like, we'll need someone to to do that. Um, And uh, Emily Claire and I uh, met each other through um, a workshop and I was an apprentice of uh, of someone called Cry Havoc Company at the time and and Emily Claire like said, hey, maybe you might want to do this and put the script in my hands and I was like, I have to do it. And I came to the interview. I had not really slept. I had like planned out the like like taken the script and like planned plotted out the entire musical. I had taken each character and then sent along a lot of MP3s of past songs I've written for each character. I was like, I'm gonna do everything in my power to make this the best interview I've ever done in my life. Like, let's do this. (laughs) And And she uh, did nail it. Um, yeah. No, no contest, truly, when that all happened. <laughs> yeah. we, and she left. I was uh, I was living in my dad's apartment at the time, and we had the interview there. And Emily Rose left, and Emily Claire and I were like, so we can just ask her. We don't have to actually interview another soul for this. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, Emily Claire and I originally met through a, a former colleague and classmates of Emily's. Uh, and my uh, and and the skeleton represents was fairly new at the time. It's a new works development and production company with a mission to explore modern myth, both by taking myths from the past and bringing them into the present, and often more excitingly looking at what is mythical about our own age and figuring out what is inherently uh, theatrical and dramatic about that. Those are words I don't shy away from. Um, I believe theater should be theatrical and dramatic. Uh, <laughs> so uh, in the effort to seek out these stories and these narratives, uh, Emily, Claire and I kind of fell into each other in just the work that Emily Claire does in general kind of fits that ethos. And I grew really interested in in a play that she had uh, which at the time was called Whatchamacallit, a play about Jesus. And we did <laughs> a salon, like a, an on-book, fully staged reading of it in 2015. And uh, a, a year later, we were doing a fully staged production of that play. And to fill in some of the, I wouldn't say gaps, I would say it was already in the script. And I just kind of made these moments bigger, but there was a very clear camaraderie in this school in the group of girls that are the disciples of the the teenage prophet. 
so I kind of built out the the choral nature of them and adding more movement and, and more voice to to what they were doing and uh, I was like, yeah, I really think this needs to be a musical, even though I'd never directed a musical prior to, um, <laughs> to this show. I knew this show needed to be a musical. And Emily took, I think, it was six months to get back to me before agreeing that yeah. this is what we should do with the story. I, I really had to think on that one. I was like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, but Rhea was right, as Rhea often is when it comes to this story. Um, and I I understood that a musical was a good direction for the show, but I'm not a musician. I can barely read music. I can plonk out chords in the piano. I was like, this is, I have to have someone who not only under, who's not only good at composing, because obviously you need to have fun, catchy music. I mean, you got it, but, but understands the emotional core of this show. Um, and it took me a long time to find someone um, who wrestles with some of the same questions that I do um, when it comes to faith and when it comes to women and all of those things. Um, so when I met Emily Rose, that's when I was like, okay, this is a person I want to give this play to. I'm not going to give it to just anybody. Um, so that was important to me. And I, I think an interesting thing is the similarities between us, um, all three of us, and also how different we are. I think that's like this really cool mm-hmm. strength of our of our team. Um, and it's really fun to, really nice to hear, like, Emily Claire, you were looking for someone who wrestles with the same things, and you found it in a London Jew. Yes. <laughs> and it's, that's, it's, it's such a beautiful thing. Yes, and yes. A, and a New York atheist agnostic. Like, it's... A, yeah. yeah. We are we not have, the same in many ways. We are not the same. <laughs> I am the only Catholic on the on the team about this play about Catholicism but um although I... every time we stage this show we are and it's not like being a Catholic is a prerequisite for auditioning and yet it is surprising no. how often we end up in the room with people who grew up going to church who grew up uh you know uh in the Catholic faith and have chosen to stick with it or not based on their own experiences and mm-hmm. that's just uh it just goes to show that uh anybody can find themselves in this work and in these characters but it is interesting mm-hmm. that there often is this intersection of people who do did have a religious upbringing or continue to have a religion as a part of their regular lives who make their way into this show and i do think it's richer for all of us uh having a place here over the years yeah That's really fantastic. And I love that you all come from different backgrounds. I do think that that makes the show so much the richer. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think that um, it helps you all fill the gaps in to definitely see the different points of views and and make sure, you know, oh, you know, well, from this point of view, I think you're lacking here or what what Mm happened, you know, bringing all, all sides to the table is fabulous. If you all have the same point, if you were all yes people it wouldn't work, you know, then you'd get the same commercial theater that gets done a lot. <laughs> We're definitely yeah. not all yes people. <laughs> not all yes people. No, we, uh, we, uh, we have a lot of conflict, um, healthy conflict when, especially when it comes to the play. Um, there's a lot of, even though it is a comedy and it is really funny, there's a lot of heavy really stuff in the play. Funny. Yes. Um, but it, it touches on a lot of like really important topics. It, it, it touches on, women's agency it, it touches on women's role in 
um, the church and religion. It touches on abortion quite a bit, um, which is something that, you know, we've talked about a lot. And we all have different opinions on all of those things, which is helpful because it means our characters can have different opinions and the characters all give the best possible argument for their opinion because we are writing from different perspectives behind different characters. And that makes the show very strong. Yeah. And we've always approached each other with um, a respect and a dignity when it comes to our disagreements. And I think that uh, that's it's it what Emily said is it plays itself out really well on stage that, you know, it's, it's a deeply engaging show. And even though the circumstances might seem specific initially, that it's a uh, written for an all female cast and that it takes place in sort of a eternal mythical middle of America kind of place. There are just these really rich perspectives and every character really, um, yeah, presents their best understanding of the world and it gets challenged by every other person on stage. Uh, and yet we still manage to end, and instead of it ending with a, a wedding, like, you know, a, a big comedy might, um, it, it ends with a birth, which is just as renewed and exciting and um, sort of wholesome in, in that, that feel-good feeling. Amazing. What was it like developing the show? And why don't I start this one off with, with our lovely director, Rhea. Uh, what, let's start with you. What was it like developing the show? It's a trip. <laughs> <laughs> Getting this one going. <laughs> uh, there, are, there are a few uh, shows and collaborators that I find like it's really worth championing in the way that I feel like I've championed this story and this show and Emily and Emily uh, and, and what they bring to the table. So it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of uh, kind of letting them go at it <laughs> and make what they're going to make. And then I'll often kind of come in and sift through what's happened and, and comb through the new material and uh, kind of, point at the things that seem to jump out to me either in really positive ways or in problematic ways and we tend to do a really good job hearing each other about the things that are really good that we need to figure out how to keep uh and the things that are not serving this this story specifically you know there's so many themes at play that that tie together so well and you can't do everything in one show um and i think a lot of creators struggle with that sometimes and i think this team has done a really good job over the years of saying like, all right, well, this is actually what matters to this narrative, um, this story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's my dream that this show has a place in the American musical canon, which I think it has the capacity to do. Uh, and that does mean that certain things need to really be presented and, and shown and, and live on in the, in the story itself. And other things need to be kind of set aside for a different narrative or a different moment. Um, what I find also really interesting about having worked on this, so I did the Salon, which is an on-book stage reading in 2015. So that was seven years ago that I first got interested in this project. Uh, a year later, uh, I chose to direct and produce a full staged version. 
that was at the Secret Theater, RIP, which was a wonderful off-Broadway venue. Yeah, that closed during COVID. But what's been cool about the show, too, is I think while we've stayed the track with uh, figuring out exactly what this story is trying to say, it continues to grow more relevant <laughs> as the years yeah. go on, which uh, I don't think is true of every show. Uh, I think a lot of things get written in the heat of the moment and they can be really reflective of sort of a flash in the pan. But I do think that this has something more eternal about it, which is where that explore modern myth theme comes into play. Uh, and so I've always encouraged both Emily's to continue to kind of reach up to those heights as opposed to the notion of dragging the characters or the music or any of that down into reality. You know, how do we how do we really push it up into those mythic elements or those mystical elements, those magical elements, um, those those miraculous things, those things that we don't really have names for. Uh, and then asking every actor who's ever uh, donated or uh, donated time or um, pushed you know, we're a small indie company. So like, there's been a lot of yeah. just people who, who have developed this work with us out of the passion for the narrative. And so I think that that's mm -hmm. spoken volumes and certainly given us fuel to keep going because it's, it's not easy developing a musical um, and it takes many, many no. years, especially if we want it to get to where we think it can go and not just, you know, little black boxes. That's I think amazing. we also do a good job making the most of any opportunity that's come our way. Yep. It's like, you know, um, a, a wonderful uh, home for independent and emerging artists, The Tank, shout out to The Tank. We, mm. I've, Skeleton Rep has produced there a ton and they they really give a lot of the support that a company like us needs where we're super self-sufficient, but we need space, we need box office, we need <laughs> dress rooms. Like we do, there's just certain basic things that are super expensive. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, when they offered us three days to do a workshop of the musical, when it was in its super early phases, we had a three and a half hour, $5 version, you know, that we, we yeah. sold out that <laughs> yes. 99 seat house four times over, you know, and we really we learned did. from that. And then New York New Works gave us the chance to do a 20 minute condensed version four months after that. And so all of us just set right back to work. And what was so cool about that is the entire cast from that tank production came and did that New Work, New Works production. We didn't have a single yeah. person drop, which is wild. That never happens in this industry that you get to really bring everyone back. Um, and in a show where everyone is gonna age out of their roles. Yeah, because the characters, most of the characters are 14 and 15 years old. There are two characters that are in their seventies. Um, and that's it, that's what we got. So um, yeah, it's hard to stay with the cast. It's hard to stay with the um, roles for a very long time. Which it's is another reason it needs to become a standard in the American musical canon. Because how many shows have roles for young girls and then women 40 years down the line from that? You know, we, you just yeah. don't see that even as an opportunity. Um, I've had any yeah. number of, of the women in working on the show now be like, oh, I want this show up in 40 years and I want to play Sister Florence. <laughs> I want to play Sister Florence. Yeah, there's so few roles for, I mean, and this is true of musical theater, but it's true of um, just entertainment in general it's like oh you know women hit 50 and it's like we don't know what to do with you in a thing and it's like what, what? you're a witch or a mom and like, you're a witch or a mom no not in this not in this not in show this. you are no witches lead. you are one of the two leads well let me ask you this what is the message that you or the thought that you're hoping audiences will walk away with and let me start with you emily claire 
Um, yeah, what, what is the message you're hoping they take away? We are smart enough, capable enough, wise enough to create a better world. There, we do not need to despair over the state of the world we're in, nor do we need to fracture as a society. Um, we do not need to give up on people who disagree with us. Um, we have the ability to make transformative change in a positive way, working with people who are not like us. That is the message I would like people to walk away with at the end of the show. Emily Rose, uh, and what about you? What is the message you're hoping with your music and whatnot? Um, I was listening to that. I would be like, yes, yes, that's it. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah, the, I think hopefully people will feel and think how they go about the world. And I, I think when we were writing one of the many versions of the finale song, um, I I turned to Emily Claire. I was like, oh, because of that line, someone's gonna send a message to their cousin. Like someone's gonna send a message to their to their uncle that they wouldn't talk to after Thanksgiving three years ago, but they'll think, you know what, maybe maybe we can do this. Um hmm. yeah. Or or message a friend or something like that. Um yeah. I like that. And then Rhea, how about you? I think my my response is is probably sim- both like less uh, grounded and more grounded at the same time. And in that, you know, I I had the great fortune of being, you know, born and growing up here in New York City, and I I grew to love theater at a very early age without anyone in my family being interested in theater at all. Um, it just sort of happened for me and. Uh, every Christmas birthday, I was just like, I just want two tickets to a Broadway show. I just want two tickets to a Broadway show. That's all I ever want, ever, ever, ever. Uh, and so for me, it's like, what I want for people is the experience I had, like seeing thoroughly modern Millie from the nosebleed sections with Sutton Foster and like that mm-hmm. sense at the end of that and and just seeing everyone and and the story that everyone put in and and just that sense of being so full so full and so um, engaged and and that sense of, you know, I, I'm gonna walk to my next subway stop because I just wanna take in the world as it is right now. I'm, mm. I'm so ready for the world as it is right now because of this experience that happens right in front of me. And so for me, it's that sense that, that I want people to come away with more than any specific message per se, a, a sense of fulfillment for themselves. Um, that happened through community and and a collective action. So I'm going to combine my next question a little bit because you've kind of answered a little, but um, how long have you guys been working on the project and has it been performed in the past? Um, I know you mentioned, I think in 2015, a reading at the Salon. Salon series, yeah. Salon series. And then 2000, was it 2018 at Secret? Then we did 2016, a full production of that, the play version. The play. The play. The play version. At, at The Secret. At The Secret. Mm-hmm. And um, then we spent 2017 writing the musical. And by musical. we, I mean the Emily's. Uh, and then in 2018, we did the three and a half hour production at The Tank. That fall, we did the 20 minute condensed version. 
at New York New Works. Oh. And Beam was in there in 2018, which is Emily Rose. Beam. We want to let folks know about Beam. Beam is a big musical theatre conference in the UK. Um, and musicals are given 10 minutes to pitch to lots of producers and uh, and theatres around the UK. Um, they all loved it and were like, we just can't put on an American musical right now. <laughs> like, thanks, guys. Thanks. It's great, but just not for us. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then we, uh, the before this version, Emily, also, if you don't mind speak, Emily Rose, if you don't mind speaking to what we did last year in the middle oh, of the yeah. pandemic. <laughs> so um, at uh, University College Western, which um, it's a it's a college uh, on the on one of the coasts of the UK. We have many coasts. We're an island, but that, on one of the coasts. <laughs> There is this university, <laughs> and um, yeah, it was right when the students could go back, but that was as as open as we were, like just the students. So, um, it that production was directed. Well, it wasn't a production; it was a workshop by students at University College Western. Um, all three, um, all three of us plus the director of that workshop. Um, who is Grace Taylor, who is one of the associate directors of Six the Musicals, Six the Musical, sorry. Um, and Six the Musical West End. Yes. Um, and uh, we were all on Zoom watching these students in like by the sea with the seagulls. We could hear the seagulls through Zoom as well as them going through musical. Um, that was, uh, yeah. An incredible, very strange experience. That's Staged cool. in like a, a just like a big rehearsal room <laughs> at the university. Um, but we learned a lot from that, and we got a lot of great feedback, and that launched us into the capacity to do the work that we've done this summer. Um, so, which was a fast turnaround. We uh, interviewed for the grant that we have that's performing it right now at the end of April. And they told us uh, five days after that, they were, we had originally uh, applied for the winter 2023 grant. So it would have been like February, March upcoming. And uh, Emily, Claire and I got an email that was like, we love your show. We loved your interview. Um, how do you feel about a July, August grant instead? <laughs> and I was like, so you want, you want me to produce a full length musical in three months? Yes. yes yes we're gonna do this <laughs> yeah that um, we're gonna do this and it's only a 48 hour should... grant so we had to stage we only had 48 hours in the space to stage mm -hmm. an entire full-length musical and they're yeah. still pulling it off so it's There's... like the show is impressive and wonderful but i as someone who, who spends a lot of time in a rehearsal room find it all the more impressive um, that this team came together so well that we've been able to do what we've done with such limited resources and the amount of time that we have. I also want to say, just to shout it out, it is the Episcopal Actors' Guild Open Stage Grant. So we do want to say thank you to the Episcopal Actors' Guild for giving us that space and doing yes. that for us. And we will also say, while we're saying that they... <laughs> 
that uh, they are above an Episcopal church. They themselves do not have a religious affiliation. So the last question I want to ask you all um, in this segment is who do you hope have access to the show? And Emily, Claire, why don't I start with you? Oh, um, I mean, there, there, that's a big, I mean, the, the, the dumb answer is everyone, but I, I don't want to say that. I think that specifically um, there are so many young women and also just, anyone who's not a man, I'm going to say, who um, feel alienated from institutional churches. And um, this show is really for them. And, but, but it's not just um, talking about connecting to other people and realizing that like, there is a place, there is community, there is support. Um, I want this show to be available in the regions, especially. It's really important to me that this show is done outside of New York City. Cause you know, I was, that, that's who I hope to see it. I, I, I think this is a show for America. I know it and the UK, but I think the show is really American. And um, so it's, it's something that I, I would like to, it to be in all the parts of this country, not just the big cities. Rhea, why don't I toss it over to you next? We, uh, in addition to having Broadway dreams for this show and, you know, West End dreams for this show. We've always talked about this show uh, being done by high schools, by colleges, um, as really a show that works in those contexts as well, Um, especially because so, uh, Emily kind of touched on this a little bit in, in her answer, but in those musical theater programs and colleges or uh, uh, conservatories, there we go. Uh, you know, a lot of those big musicals that they do are male heavy and, you know, you get, you just gotta, as a female in those places, you often just get chucked in an ensemble if you're not, you know, the right type of mezzo-soprano for, for the one or two female roles that the show has to offer, or if you're not of a certain look or a certain age. And what's cool about this show is, is, you know, for those very female heavy musical theater programs, this show offers a lot of excellent roles in a well-developed script that really, you know, in a, in an academic setting, you'd have the chance to dive into this book, dive into the music, dive into the lyrics. I think um, I speak with our, our music director a lot about just how rich the composition and the lyrics are and, you know, if, if you're a student and you're studying this stuff, this is a great one to study because there's so much underneath the veneer of this big, fun musical. And so in many ways, for me, the thing that I would love to see is that this gets into the hands of those, not just like the Yales uh, and the Tishes, as much as those are fabulous places and I would love for them to do it, but there are tons of musical theater programs all throughout this country and uh, and, you know, the UK was our first testing mm. ground for it. It works, it works really yeah. well in those contexts, too. 
Yeah, I, and I, I think that also speaks to, I, I can imagine it going internationally to different schools as well. I, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's also the kind of material to trust young students with, young women with, um, from, from teenage years, uh, right up, because it's just, it's rare to get to play these roles. And also, I think it, it, um watching the the students on the course even through zoom we could see that they over the two weeks that they were looking at this material that they were going through the story going through the characters saying the lines that they um they were thinking and growing and learning as people it's i think it's you can gain if you've got a choice between like guys and dolls and it, the inconvenient miracle. Your students like would get so much more from looking at this material, <laughs> and yeah, and also there's no date rape, so it's great. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and every there isn't there isn't a villain, right? It's like mm. it's this interest, like the story itself is this super. You know, the the three of us are, you know, we're all artists, but we're also all really smart well-read people and so it's it's interesting combining all of that together in that you know our lead Vanessa and our elder lead Flo sister Florence is really a, a, a coming together narrative a buddy buddy journey in many ways a, a difference of opinions who who come in together as one but then you also have Abigail who has a who's the teenage prophet who very much has a classic hero's journey in many ways mm -hmm. throughout it uh, and so it's it's also rare to see all of that put together in one place sort of seamlessly. It's It's got a lot to offer. Well, on our show, we not only talk about, um, break, or not only break shows down, but we like to also uh, share our own experiences in the theater. So I'd like to ask you all now about some of your own personal experiences in the theater. Um, so why don't we start with a nice and easy question. Um, what shows in the past have inspired you or do you love? And we'll open that up to composers or playwrights as well. And Emily Rose, why don't we start with you on this one? Okay. Uh, well, when I summarize how I write as a composer, I would say that I crawled out of Jason Brown's vagina, was brought up by a wild pack of Sun Times, and uh, Regina Spector was my babysitter. <laughs> um, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> what I can add to that little wonderful mix would be um, spring, awake spring Awakening, because yes, I was a teenager in the last 30 years. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, spring, like, I think I... I'd have to be born on the moon if I wasn't oscillating between last five years and spring awakening at one point in my life. Um, but recently I've, I've, I started inhaling uh, ghost quartet quite a lot. Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think that's an answer. I can pass it over to other people. Uh, Rhea, why don't we, we hit you with this one? 
I've always been interested in the dramatic as a very young person. Like I was already, I performed Hamlet's famous soliloquy as my book report in sixth grade. I had no friends and I like made someone do lights like lightning. I made someone have a big piece of cardboard for the thunder sheet. I was like, I was in it <laughs> in a very serious and dramatic way from a very early age. Uh, I also had a, a wonderful theater teacher coach uh, who in retrospect was a lot more than that, but I was a little too young to realize it at the time. Her name was Elaine Lamont. And she imparted the necessity of knowing the showbiz legends to me and, and uh, my comrades at the Theater Learning Center, Showbiz Kids, doesn't exist anymore, but it was a fabulous program out in Queens. Uh, and so working with her, I got to do impersonations of people like Mae West uh, as a 12-year-old and then Ethel Merman as a 14-year-old and, and things like that. So the, the size and scope and the understanding of what it means to present character and personality has always really grabbed my attention. I already mentioned that uh, Sutton Foster's Thoroughly Modern Million 2002 was really impactful for me seeing that. I loved the Spamalot musical. Um, my sister reminded me that I played Rent nonstop when she started singing one of the songs word for word when I saw her last. Um, and she is not a musical theater person, which just lets me know how loud I was playing it on my CD player. Um, on repeat. Uh, so I, I'm coming from a mix of things like that. I also studied Latin and did a lot of translating of Ovid's Metamorphoses and things like that. So uh, if it's if it's big and, and dramatic and well done, it's, it's probably influenced me. And Emily Clare, how about you? What What's influenced or inspired you? Yeah, um, so I, I love classics. Um, my um, like first theater training was all Shakespeare. I um, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was part of a a uh, something called the Groundlings, the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company. I'm pretty sure it still exists, and it's a program where like all throughout high school, every Saturday, I would spend the I would spend like five hours a day every Saturday doing Shakespeare, which was not I mean very I don't know cool I guess. Um, but so I was we did like, we probably did every Shakespeare play at some point in when I was in high school, just doing that. Um, and I um, feel like that level of theatricality and the, the way things just happen and they're not questioned. Um, there's never a dull moment. Um, you accept the things that happen on stage and, you know, those sort of um, types of stories are that, and they're, they're big. Um, they have tons and tons of characters and, um, not like these little two-handers, not that, there's nothing wrong with a two-hand play necessarily, but um, it's, I'm not really that interested in realism. Um, I, for some reason, I'm reminded to a argument I had in Rhea's living room one time um, with- a That guest living room was the site of many an argument. <laughs> yeah, it was not, an, it was an argument um, with, a, with someone who I do not remember who they were, a guest at a party at a skeleton rep event. And we were arguing about Arthur Miller and this person was like, I am so tired of these male chauvinist playwrights. We do not need any more Arthur Miller. If we're going to do a chauvinist, give me Inge. I only want to do Inge. And I like looked at this person. I was like, I don't know what your deal with Arthur Miller is, but I'm going to pretend like you didn't personally insult me because this is my entire, like there's the death, death of a salesman is 
Oh, and she was like, I just can't stand realism. I'm like, well, it's not realism. There's no realism. And if it's being done as realism, it's being done wrong. I'm really, I'm, I'm offended that you think these plays are realism. And um, I, I just, I kind of think this is just, this is just such a, I don't know, people may judge me for this. I think Death of a Salesman is the ideal play. And I, when I write things, I want them to be that level of just angst, but also capturing people think it's realism because it's so human um but it's not it's it's not that and i i want to do those kind of magic on stage um yeah that's that's where i am <laughs> it's almost that notion and i think there's something we kind of share in this and in, in you know the vast majority of things that were written on the face of this planet were written before psychology was invented as a concept and so you know for it to be Shakespeare these things were like th things happen because they must <laughs> and yeah. that's sort of what pushes the story forward uh as opposed to diving into the the nitty-gritty of any like one perspective which is mutable in any moment depending on you know any number of circumstances mm -hmm. but just like this is the circumstance and this is how this character is dealing with this in this moment in time and it just so happens that this creates a series of dominoes that produces this narrative that gives people a lot of feelings, a lot of things that language can't sufficiently explain. It must be experienced. And I think that the three of us in, in many ways have been working towards that, that sense of like, this is a thing that must be experienced. It's, it's not just about, you know, how great can it be broken down and explained by others? You know, sometimes we lose something when we start to try to give words to something that's so much bigger than language. Well, let me ask you uh, guys this question. Uh, it sounds like you guys have all been busy, but I'll, I'll try it anyway. Uh, Emily, Claire, I'm going to start with you on this. Have you seen any great theater that you can recommend to our listeners? Have I seen any great theater that I can recommend? We've been doing so much. Um, most of the theater <laughs> that I see is um, at the tank. Um, and we had our short play festival recently. I'm not going to say our short, that sounds like our short play festival is the best <laughs> thing I've seen. I'm going to say that I saw, although it was very good, I saw a wonderful reading by uh, a playwright who we are all familiar with, um, uh, Caitlin Kenny. Um, recently um, as part of Trash Fest um, it, about environmentalism and her play, um, which, oh no, I can't remember the name of it. 10 um, Years. Yes, thank you. 10 Years um, is a play about, oh gosh. Um, it, I, the easy thing to say is that it is a play about environmental, the environmental crisis, but really it is a play about a mother who is being destroyed by her child, but it also takes place in sort of a magical realism world. Um, and it was beautiful and there was audience participation and we drew on the stage and threw things and cleaned things and um, played games in the theater. And it was so weird and cool and I just loved it. Emily Rose, how about you? Um, so I was the sound designer for a show in London called Superhuman by James Metiard and directed by Donica O'Brien. And because I was on that, and it was very, that was fun to see, it was 
like uh, Comic-Con had music, musical. it was a musical-ish Comic-Con thing and it was very fun. But the thing that I saw, because uh, Brian, that uh, Donica was originally the uh, director of a show called Operation Mincemeat, which is currently running at Riverside Studios in West London. Um, and that is a musical about Operation Mincemeat, which I think was a film as well. But it's a it's it's something that actually happened um, during World War Two. And that was a really in, it, it's very interesting to see what British musical theatre is outside of Andrew Lloyd Webber. And that was definitely yeah. uh, that it, it's kind of like, oh, what happens if Andrew Lloyd Webber is not writing British musical theatre? Theater. oh this is cool um, and it was very cool uh, it's I, I can't I mean it might come to America one day but it's so British that I just can't imagine that America <laughs> understand a word of it <laughs> we need subtitles I think it would have to be subtitled but not like word for word but just like kind of paraphrasing what the British people on stage are singing um, it was really good and really interesting and also very um it was it was made like a musical that was like we're gonna go on the West End one day, but we will never have the budget. So <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was very polished with five people playing every character under the sun, and yeah, very very cool, very interesting, and uh, yeah, I yeah. found the thing you were looking for. I did. So there's two things I want to say. One is a show that's actually running right now through the end of the month happy life at walker space um i would recommend to folks uh just just go see it it's uh katyan and i came up at the flea together uh back in the day and i'm always excited to see um and it's it's kathy eng's new play so okay. exciting exciting material over there uh, and then another one is, uh, it, it can't be seen, but it can be read. And I highly recommend anyone finding it, reading it. And if anyone wants to produce it, contact me, I'm ready. Uh, is a really huge epic piece of theater by Carolyn Gage called Esther yes. and Vashti. Em Emily Claire loves this mm -hmm. too. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, I know so where you're going with this. Yeah. Uh, uh, Carolyn Gage is sort of, um, I, I recommend just people getting it familiar with her work. She's a seminal American playwright uh, in her 70s. She's got over 200 works. Uh, she focuses, she's a deeply feminist writer, um, but she is a an ultimate craftsman. Um, her, her plays are airtight. They are like boats. Like you can take them out the dock 20 miles out to sea in a storm and you'll return safely. Her, her scripts are just of that caliber. And Esther and Vashti is a true contemporary, uh, contemporary in the sense it was written, um, you know, in the last 20 years. Uh, but it is a Shakespeare style epic reimagining um, Esther and Vashti, that, that biblical narrative. And it's for 22 people. We did a salon of it with 22 actors playing all the roles. And it was incredibly engaging and powerful and you even at its two hours. Yeah, you can't turn it down. It's you can't amazing. cut a single one. If you cut a single one, the play falls apart. It's absolutely stunning. It's a re it's a, a reimagining of the Esther story from the Bible, but it is um it is a a a queer reimagining and also feminist reimagining and there is violence and there is there is rage and there is so much love and it's just wild. 
She is a, yeah. a gift that COVID um, brought skeleton rep and she challenges me uh, in ways that I deeply respect. And um, she thinks I'm insane for loving her work. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a, a mutual relationship of love, adoration, and a little bit of insanity. winding things down i uh want to ask you all what your favorite theater memory is and ria why don't we start with you what is your favorite theater memory boy (laughs) i'm gonna uh, because i already brought up the the thoroughly modern millie story i'm gonna answer slightly differently okay which is um the Chicago musical movie came out, I think also in 2002. And so I was 13 years old and it was winter. And um, it was one of the, it was the first time I took myself on a date by myself. And so I walked from our apartment on 97th and Riverside to um, a movie playhouse on 83rd and Broadway. And by myself, I watched uh, the Chicago musical movie and realized that I don't need to be around anyone specifically to feel connected to everything and everyone. And I think in theater in general, when it's done really well, that's the sensation. Um, but I have very specific memories of walking in the snow to go see this show oh. as a young, as a young teenager. And Emily Claire, how about you? What is your uh, favorite theater memory? I mean, this is trite, but it, the truth is I saw Lin-Manuel Miranda play Hamilton in Hamilton and I'm still not over it. That's just the truth. I'm just not over it. And I don't think I'll ever be over it. So that's it. Uh, I went, my husband, um, my husband selected that for his birthday present one year. So we were able to see the original, the full original cast. Um, um, yeah, so that was it. Uh, finally, Emily Rose, what is your favorite theater memory? Uh, it, it's, it's a tie between two memories of me sobbing in an audience. And the first one is uh, watching Bridges of Madison County with my cousin and oh. we were sobbing. Like, I, no one can say anything about that show to me. I sobbed. <laughs> Go fuck yourself, I sobbed. Sorry for swearing. Um, and the second, the other memory is when um, I think it was the first time. I don't think I realized how significant it was for me, but like I was sitting in Barrington Sage at uh, the Bill Finn uh, concert that he had, tends to have with the students, and um, my song was performed, and it was a big audience, and the song was like really personal. It was about my mum going to see a song that I had written. And I sobbed from the first chord to the last, just like, t- like sobbing. It was just such an overwhelming experience to hear someone perform my song at me, surrounded by people. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> the first of many and many yeah. more to come. <laughs> so, oh. Your, your lips to the deity's ears. I'm, I'm on it. Let me get on that. 
<laughs> I also have a very funny memory of yes. going to see Rocky Horror, a stage version when I was 12, like a full Broadway stage version. Um, as my 12, as my parents decided the whole family's going for my 12th birthday. My sister was <laughs> nine years old. My my parents are, are young and knew I was kind of queer and they were like, oh, Rhea's going to love this. Um, I did. Dick Cabot was the narrator. And yes. the narrator plays like this really elaborate role in this setup. And it was in um, it was at the, the New World stages. So in the, one of those basement, those big basement theaters and Dick Cabot's, you know, riffing with the audience kind of at the at the top of the show. And he's like, oh, and, and some people brought their nine year old to see this show last week. And my sister sticks her hand up. We were in the third row and she goes, I'm nine. <laughs> there are a lot of condoms coming out and all kinds of fun stuff so that sticks out just as like a, in terms of a memory that one's clear uh, as we wrap this up i just want to ask are there any other productions that you guys are involved in or that skeleton rep has coming down the pipeline that you guys might want to share or plug uh anyone who wants to jump in here emily rose go <laughs> I um I have a show that's going to have a concert in London in September on the 21st and 22nd of September. Um it's at the Other Palace uh which is is a theater that used to be owned by Andy Lloyd Webber but no longer. <laughs> <laughs> is he watching? Um okay and <laughs> he's always watching. <laughs> um, and uh, Confessions of a Rabbi's Daughter is a one-woman musical. It's been performed by Tanya Truman. Uh, it's about Rabbi's daughter who falls in love with her best friend Sarah whilst being engaged to um, engaged to a guy called Menachem. And uh, yeah, goes along the themes of women's women's relationship with religion. <laughs> bit of a bit of a niche I've got there. <laughs> <laughs> Skeleton Rep, uh, Inconvenient Miracles, our big project of the year. We are still a very uh, mighty, mighty company with a very small budget. Uh, so, but we do have four incredible salons coming up this fall that will all be virtual. So anyone anywhere uh, can tune in and, and catch what we are, we're capable of. The first one is uh, Emily, if you have the calendar open, you can keep me honest about it. Uh, easiest way to keep up to date with us is skeletonrep.org uh, and our Instagram at skeletonrep. Those two things are always up to date. Um, but we've got a wonderful play uh, called Un Hombre, a Gollum Story uh, coming up September 17th. And then in October, we've got a show called The Death of Ruby Slippers. Ruby Slippers is a drag name. Very exciting. Uh, following that, we've got a play called Floating Girls Go to the Moon, uh, written by a Mexican-American playwright. And then we cap the season off with a, a big post-apocalyptic epic play called Sundown. Amazing. This sounds amazing. Oh, we, we do cool seasons over here. <laughs> the, I'm going to And all new works. And you should, I mean, I'm just going to say, Rhea said... Um, you know, we we have a small budget. You should donate to Skeleton Rep if you like new work development. That is a thing you should do. 
Always. Not you, the listeners. It's true. We are fiscally sponsored by Fractured Atlas, so it is a tax-deductible donation, if that uh, excites anybody. We also have Venmo. (laughs) You got to sponsor these kind of companies, so feet are coming in. You got to start somewhere. Emily, Claire, is there anything you have uh, coming on the pipeline or that you wish to plug? <laughs> this is my thing right now. Um, I'm I'm working on um, I'm working on some film scripts, but honestly, um, I, what, what are the movies of yours you've already had out? Mm. Oh, uh, yeah. I <laughs> if you like Hallmark <laughs> movies, there are two Hallmark movies that I wrote. Um, one of them is called Beverly Hills Wedding. I was the second writer on that movie, and the. First, the other one is called Raise a Glass to Love. I was the first writer. That is my story. It is a wine romance and it stars um, the uh, the guy who plays the neighbor in Fuller House as the love interest. And, um, oh gosh, um, uh, Laura. Um, uh, yes, uh, the, she played Cinderella on Broadway. She's yes. in the movie. That's my movie. And I'm not even going to lie. I'm very proud of it. So... I want everyone oh, to Oh, Skeleton Rep is finally finishing our first movie. I forgot. It's been such a minute. Uh, what's it's the been such a slog. It's so cool. So actually, uh, both Emily's were huge instrumental parts in, in um, the origins of this. So during the pandemic, I put out a call to artists. I was like, whoever wants to be involved in whatever capacity, we need to do something to not go crazy. And we created um, a trilogy called uh, The Great Vanishing. The Great Vanishing parts one, two, and three all happened virtually. And then uh, I decided that we had to do a, a filmed version, a fully in, you know, fully filmed production for The Great Vanishing part four. Uh, and so it is about uh, something is happening in the world where historic important monuments are disappearing. Uh, off the face of the planet. There is no explanation as to how it's happening or why it's happening. And we follow uh, a reporter, Nigel Anderson Cole, as he tries to figure it out and a uh, in touch with the the beyond character named Abby who tries to connect to the beings that are stealing the monuments. And so we did a filmed version, part four last summer, and we will finish that um, and that will start making the film festival circuit this fall. The Great Vanishing, part four. That's exciting. If our listeners want to get more information about your show or they want to reach out to you all uh, and, ca- and contact you, how can they do that? Um, uh, Theinconvenientmiracle.com um, is where you can find information about our show. You can find the Skeleton Rep at skeletonrep.org and sign up for our newsletter. And that is the best way to get information about all things Inconvenient Miracle and Skeleton Rep, because that will both go out through the Skeleton Rep newsletter. And then do you guys have any like personal plugs you want if you want people to come bother you or? You can find yeah. me at emilyclashmit.com. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm songsofemilyrose.com. I've got a monthly-ish podcast uh, called Songs of Emily Rose, the Songs of Emily songs of emily rose podcast i don't know yes <laughs> and uh if if you contact skeleton rep you will get me so that's a good way to get at ria thank you all so much for joining me today 
And again, thank you for, for staying a little later than planned. Uh, it's been a truly, it has been a joy talking to you, learning about all of this. Uh, listeners, run, don't walk, get your tickets for this incredible show. I'm sure I'm going to be sharing a lot more about this show. If you haven't seen their uh, Instagram videos and that, you need to check them out. They're both creepy and alluring. It's fantastic. Um, we've been speaking with Emily Cla uh, Claire Schmidt, who's the book writer and originator, Emily Rose Simons, who's the composer and lyricist, and Rhea T. DeLulo, who is the director, producer, and additional writer for the Inconvenient Miracle playing at EAG, the Episcopal Actors Guild. It's currently playing now through August 27th, Thursday through Saturday at 7 p.m. And you can get more information and tickets at inconvenientmiracle.com. You can also visit uh, Skeleton Rep at skeletonrep.org. We're going to have all the information to uh, websites talked about here and social media. It'll be all included in the description for the uh, this episode as well as on our social media. Boy, that was a mouthful. But more importantly to the point, the Inconvenient Miracle. Make sure to see it and support this theater company. Most important, support the arts. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies and keep your masks on, and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you'll find all the information about our backstage pass. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. Hi.